everyone, and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. And thanks to Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for kicking things off, and not just here on Last Chair, but also playing for Ski Utah's Pray for Snow kickoff party earlier in November at Woodward Park City. Welcome back again to our sponsor, High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. When you're in Utah, visit one of High West's locations in either Park City or nearby Wanship. And this week, we're also welcoming a popular Utah-based outdoor company to the Ski Utah Last Year podcast as an episode sponsor. A big thanks to Gregory Mountain Products, based right here in Salt Lake City, for supporting Last Chair. Check out Utah-based Gregory Mountain Products at gregory.com. Ski Utah has a fabulous array of skiers and riders in its athlete ambassador pool, all helping showcase the great skiing and riding that we enjoy across the state. In this episode, I wanted to catch up with a Utah native who, a little over a decade ago, rose quickly to become one of the biggest names in what was then the new discipline of free ski. Alex Schlopey was born and raised in Park City in an era where young kids were doing new things on skis. That period of the early 2000s and up into the 2010s saw names like Joss Christensen, McCray Williams, Tanner Hall, Tom Wallish either growing up in Park City or migrating here. Alex Schlopey was central to that period of sport growth. After a surprise performance in the Dumont Cup back in Maine in 2010, Alex Schlopey came out the next year and took titles in the X Games, World Championships on his home mountain in Park City, and the Dew Tour in Snow Basin, all over the period of about five or six weeks. Already getting caught up in the lifestyle of the sport, though, Schlopey's life started plummeting after he narrowly missed making the 2014 Olympic team for the debut of free ski in Sochi. In the podcast, he talks candidly about the challenging period of his life and how he fought back to sobriety. Today, Schlopey is having more fun than ever with the sport that he championed as a young athlete. Dig in on this one. It's an intense look at the roller coaster ride of Alex Schlopey and how today he's found peace and enjoyment with a sport that he so dearly loves. Let's catch up now with Alex Schlopey on Last Chair. The ski season is here. It is snowing across Utah. And with me today, world champion Alex Schlopey. And Alex, thanks for joining us on Last Chair. I'm stoked to be here. I know you, you're working up at uh, Jackson's at the uh, Park City Mountain Base, and I know you guys are getting stoked to see a little bit of snow coming and things getting ready to go for the opening. Yeah, it's always exciting. You know, once we get on snow, things change for the better. <laughs> now, you're a Ski Utah athlete ambassador now, so how I know, I know you haven't gotten your first season yet, but <laughs> how's that going so far? I'm really excited. You know, I've obviously been aware of Ski Utah for a long time, and once I saw this program they do to, to become an ambassador, I signed up, figured give it a shot, and I'm excited to see what it's all about. Well, you're going to be doing a lot of skiing this winter, I'm sure of that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. I'm really excited and looking forward to it. We're going to dive more into your competition background, but I know that you're not competing so much anymore. Are you competing at all anymore? No, I'm not. I did my last contest when I was 28, so almost three years ago now. But you're still having fun with skiing. 
Oh, yeah. More fun than ever. Good. That's really good to hear. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You had amazing parents. You you had a you know, mother, Holly Flanders, who was a, a member of the U.S. ski team, a downhill racer. Your father, Todd Schlopey, you actually played in the NFL. So uh, you had some good genes going for you, born here in Park City, and it was just natural you would get on snow. Yeah. I mean, it was quite the combo. They, I think... I just barely started learning how to walk when they had me out on snow learning how to ski. So I was 18 months old and yeah, it, it didn't click quite right away, but throughout the years it started to set in. Do you have any memories back? I know you don't remember back to 18 months old, but you're going on what your mom and dad have told you, but what memories do you have as a really little kid skiing in Park City? So it was Wolf Mountain back then, which is now the canyons, which is Park City. And I was on their ski racing team and I did one official race and I crashed over the finish line. I actually put my pole in front of me and pole vaulted over my stomach over the finish line. And that was the end of my race career. <laughs> was mom disappointed? <laughs> no, she was more happy that I was okay. <laughs> You know, I think all of us have kind of done that in one form or another, but I could just see you as a little, how old would you have been at that point? Oh man, I must've been uh, seven or eight years old. <laughs> Boots right over the top and bam. Yep. Yep. First scorpion. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. Well, I, I know that you, you were involved in a lot of different sports, had a background in gymnastics and tumbling. How would that go on to help you? Gymnastics has helped me throughout my whole entire life. And I think for any kid out there, having a baseline in gymnastics is huge. Just knowing how to use your body, learning how to flip and do all those things safely. I started when I was eight years old and I went to Black Diamond Gymnastics in Park City. I was immediately put in Mike Hanley's program, who ended up being the coach for quite a few people you might recognize, Nick Gepper, the Olympian, and McCray Williams, and quite a few others. So his program was awesome. I ended up Taking it as far as the state competition where I won tumbling and got second in trampoline and then kind of was shifted towards the free skiing side of things by Mike himself. So that was pretty cool. How old were you when you got into free skiing? I was 11. So when I transitioned into middle school, I met Joss Christensen and he, I mean, we started hanging out just as friends and he started showing me all these free ski movies with, you know, Tanner Hall, Yoon Olsen, Simon Dumont. And I was like, what is this? Like I, I saw ski racing, I've seen moguls and aerials and I loved all that stuff, but this was the one that really clicked. It was, you know, it was art, artistic expression on skis. And I thought that was really cool. If you go back to that time, and I know that you were really young at that point, but Park City was becoming really the epicenter of this new movement of free skiing. You know, you mentioned McCray Williams, Josh Christensen, and others. What was it about the the vibe, or really does it come back to some of the coaches who were spearheading this for the kids? Honestly, it was all, all the above. There, The vibe in Park City, it was kind of everybody was doing it. You know, we'd in the summer, we'd be at the skate park, either rollerblading or skateboarding. And then in the winter, we'd all be skiing from open to close, which at that time we had night skiing. So pretty much every school day, we'd get off school and go night ski. And then on the weekends, we'd ski all day. <laughs> you know, just growing up in Park City and just set the competition aside, but Park City has always been pretty good at providing opportunities for kids in town to get to get on snow. So skiing was kind of just second nature as a young kid growing up here. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the mecca for that in my eyes. I mean, there's just so many kids out here learning how to do 
whatever winter sport they want and then having the facilities and the programs to to push it as far as they want. And it's just a beautiful community. When you started out, I know later you would specialize in, in slope style, but like most kids, when you start out, it was a little bit of everything. You were in the pipe, you were up on the, the big the big jumps doing slope style. So as, as a kid, was it just kind of like going to an amusement park when you went to the resort? Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. It was kind of uh, pick and choose. You know, we'd go ski through the trees. We'd have all these different types of runs that we would set out just to get to the park. And then we'd have different, you know, objectives. We'd try and ski payday switch from top to bottom with turning as few times as possible. And that's kind of how we progressed. We just set these. We didn't realize we were setting goals, but we were setting goals basically every day. You know, we'd have a trick we wanted to get on a rail or you know, be able to clear this jump and whoever could do it first got, you know, props or whatever, which is, you know, respect in the ski community. This was in the early days of the sport and you guys were doing new things out of the ski area. How did that work with the the management of the ski area and the patrol? Were, were you guys buddies or were they always chasing you down? A little bit of both. I think, you know, if, if you were respectful towards them, it was a lot easier to to figure out what was okay and what was pushing it too far. So for the most part, you know, we had a few incidences, you know, like ducking a rope, which they're there for a reason. We learned not to do that pretty quick. But for the most part, once they started allowing the progression of free skiing and building the the jumps and putting the parks there, made it a lot easier. When you were just in the formative times, I know ultimately a great park was developed, the course down King's Ground where you won the world championship. But before all that was set, what were some of the places you would go on the mountain to just have fun? Oh, everywhere. One of my favorite memories was learning a backflip in Jupiter Bowl with Joss. And I think McCray was up there too. There was, I mean, all of these, we all skied together growing up and we fueled off each other. And the first backflip I ever tried, I almost did a double backflip because I just wanted to get it around and ended up landing on my head and back and then went up the second time and landed at that time. So that was in Jupiter Bowl. And then, you know, right off of Jupiter Access, there's some fun trees. So kind of everywhere. You know, it, it's 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 funny. I remember back when our kids were young, we used to ski off of Jupiter Access all the time. And it was just those trees were great. And I think now, you know, we've gotten used to so many other places on the mountain. We don't hit that. But man, there's some nice terrain back there for kids. It's awesome, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Jupiter, however, I don't go up there a lot. <laughs> yeah. Actually, do you still go up to Jupiter? Sometimes, yeah. It's, it, it can get overcrowded. If you get Jupiter on a good day, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, it's just, it's tough sometimes because there there can be longer lines up there. It's a two-person lift and it's hit or miss. Yeah. How about 9990 up there a lot? Yeah, I love 9990 actually. That was a, a spot, I think it was two seasons ago, I skied down the, I forget the name of the bowl, but down one of the bowls in there and I found a jump that was already built and was able to land a double backflip off of that. And I was like, where, where would you be able to find a jump already built that you could do a double flip on? Did you ever find out who built it? No. And if you built it, let me know. We can go build it again. That's <laughs> so awesome. That was so fun. You know, it's 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 fun exploring that kind of backcountry within the boundaries of the ski area. There's some fun stuff out there. It's incredible. It's it's kind of endless. You know, I've I've been skiing here my whole life and I find new stuff pretty much every day when I go out. So 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 as a young teen, you found free skiing, you're starting to get into lower level comps. 
you eventually went over from the public school to the winter school and tell folks a little bit about what that is and why that's so important to young athletes like you were back then. Yeah. So I was in, I think I was in eighth grade. I was, I was kind of consistently having issues in middle school just because I was so focused on skiing and like any other kid, it was hard for me to sit down for the whole day and pay attention. But the winter sports school became, I mean, they, I think they reached out to me because I was starting to fail out of eighth grade. My grades were really bad. I wasn't attending most of the time. The whole winter, I was pretty much gone and I wasn't able to make up the work because it had stacked up too much. So I actually dropped out of eighth grade and went straight into ninth grade at the winter sports school and ended up doing really well in class, getting A's and B's. And I was able to compete without having that extra pressure and added stress of having a lot of schoolwork that I had to make up because I wasn't there. So we actually had five months off in the winter and we'd go to school all summer. Who were some of the other athletes who were in your class, maybe from other sports? Yeah, we had, well, Joss Christensen was with me, Vincent Gagne, Marcus Caston was there, Kelly McKenzie, Christoph Lentz. I mean, there was a lot of people. Ted Ligety went there, I know, and Tanner Hall was there before us. So there's been a lot of athletes that have gone through the winter sports school. Were you in school with Tanner? Actually, Tanner's older than you, so you guys didn't cross paths then. No, no, I was not in school with him. I just heard the stories. <laughs> we'll get we'll get we'll save that for another podcast. Actually, I just listened to a podcast with Tanner. He did the Paul Movement podcast. And it was really fascinating. Oh, I bet. He I mean that man's seen a lot. Yeah, and and you know the cool thing is he's at a point too in his career where he can tell those stories. He can kind of look at yeah, this is what I did, maybe this is what I should have done, but it was it, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting listen. So, things are going pretty well. They're clicking along for you. And then 2007, you had a car accident. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. It was really tough. So, I mean, I, I was 15 years old and I was starting to hang out with kids who were partying. I, I personally didn't really partake yet. And I was at a buddy's house who he was having some friends over and I asked one of the kids to give me a ride home so I could go home, study, go to bed. And I had a test the next day. On the way back, I think there was there were eight of us in the car. He had pulled off to do donuts in, I think it was the Canyons parking lot. And basically going about 40, 50 miles per hour, went sideways and hit a boulder. And then we flipped two and a half times. So I was sitting up front and the, the roof of the car was pushed down almost all the way to the seat. And I took pretty much the whole brunt of it to my head. So I had a, a severe concussion that ended up having causing issues for a long time. What are, you know, people hear about concussions, but it's hard to really define what it is. But what were the things that were going on with you? And I know that in your case, you kind of looked at it, it was like, it's about a five, six, seven year odyssey for you. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. Things started creeping up. I, I didn't realize it. And like you said, with Tanner kind of looking back and being able to talk about things, it's kind of like that. I started becoming really depressed. It was hard for me to go outside. I had sensitivity to light. So started building anxiety and getting really severe migraines where I'd actually go blind and then get a really bad headache that would put me out for a day or two. And then, you know, there I'd have vertigo, a little bit of agoraphobia, being in open spaces scared me a lot. So there was a lot to overcome and just slowly but surely started working back into doing things. 
Being in open spaces scared yeah. you. Yeah. So for like at the beach, I would, I would start having a panic attack because it felt like I was falling off the, off the earth. How are you in elevators? It's <laughs> a good question. Sometimes it was okay. Other times it felt like I just kept moving. Even after I got off the elevator, I know that happens to you know quite a few people, but it would last for a long time. So I think overall, I just had, I actually did a lot of tests. I went to a facility and they were they were testing my inner ear and seeing what it could be and they couldn't find anything. So it was definitely something to do with that impact to my brain. Have you counseled other athletes who've gone through this, whether that's in your sport or outside and talk to them about, hey, this is what I went through? A little bit, yeah. And I'm actually, I've been talking to someone who leads a TBI and concussion group in Park City and hopefully in the next month or two, be able to sit in with them and share some of my story and hopefully give some hope because it's a scary path. You never know what what it's going to bring, you know, and just being able to lay out some of the things that you can expect and, you know, hopefully things that you can look forward to and maybe give you some goals. Now, you came back from that. You went to Breckenridge, but injuries, other physical injuries started to come into play. Talk talk me through that. Yeah. So that that was really tough because I was really eager to get back on skis regardless of the car accident. And I had just been pre-qualified for the U.S. Open. And I think I was one of the youngest athletes or maybe the youngest athlete at that time to be pre-qualified for both slopestyle and halfpipe. So I was out in Breckenridge training and I had just learned a double flip on the slopestyle course after watching Unolson and Jossie Wells learn it. And those guys were kind of the top dogs back then. So I was really excited. And then I dropped into the halfpipe and third hit got lost in the air. I think because of the concussion stuff, I just completely got lost. And I landed at the bottom and blew out my right knee, ACL, MCL, meniscus, and got another concussion. So it was really tough. And I was in denial. You know, I skied down and didn't think anything could be severely wrong with my knee, but I was just kind of a naive 15-year-old. (laughs) <laughs> You're 31 now. It's easy to look back there and say, wow, I understand it now, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a lot easier. You know, it's there's there's wisdom to accepting what is, you know. And as a kid, I had a lot of issues with that simple reality. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit about what I'll call the glory period. You had a run in 2010 and 2011 that would be the envy of any athlete. Starting out, I mean, you're you're not a pro yet. You go to the uh, Dumont Cup out at Sunday River. You've got to compete against what over a hundred other amateurs just to get a spot. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's an open event, so anyone can sign up. Yep. So basically, I I started out in the qualification round too. A lot of athletes will get invited and pre-qualified into semifinals. So I had to go through every single round and I was able to take the top spot. And I know Wallace and Joss came in second and third. I think Joss got second and Wallace got third. So that was pretty cool. And then Simon brought us all over to his house and announced that he was going to put me on the team with him and Tom for the Unolson Super Sessions, which was a two-week-long video contest in Sweden. So that was like... It was like the dream was starting to come true in a really wild way, you know, because with all the stuff mentioned before with the concussion and all that, it, w- it felt really good to finally have a little bit of success. 
Now, you knew Joss because you grew up together in Park City, although he's a little older than you, I think, isn't he? Just a little bit, Just yeah. Just a little bit. And then did you know Tom from, from Park City as well? Yeah, Tom kind of came along a little bit later, and we all obviously knew who he who he was. He had been posting videos on new schoolers, and he was kind of, you know, the hot talk of the town. So we'd always see him skiing and try and mimic a lot of the stuff he was doing, too, because he was, you know, an incredible talent. So you threw a switch right double cork 14 there. How big a deal was that back in 2010? It was, I think it was the first one ever done in competition. And it's funny because that I always had this weird thing where every double I would try right off the bat, I would spin an extra rotation. So I was kind of starting to do tricks that hadn't been done yet. In, inadvertently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it worked out and I just kind of tried to master that even though it wasn't exactly what I was going for. I was like, why not, why not work with it? Just do it. Amazing. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, you're just a, you're just a kid out there and all of a sudden you're being embraced by these superstars of the sport. It was, it, you know, it's, it still feels like a dream. That's how surreal it was. It was just an incredible experience. I had put, I mean, I literally put all my eggs in the, into the basket of skiing and I just focused 100% on skiing. So to have it come true, that dream come true as a kid, you know, like it, it's so hard to put into words. Did you have family out there? Not for the Dumont Cup. No, not that, not that one. But the next season, they were at most of those contests. Yeah, this is for real. The kids got something. <laughs> Let's go up to that next season of from the middle of January until the end of February. You were the talk of the sport. X Games title, world championship title at home, do tour gold up at Snow Basin. Talk about that kind of four to six week period. And, and you must have been on cloud nine. Yeah. I mean, to say the least, it was – I had – I guess I had a chip on my shoulder. I, I really wanted to overcome the injuries that I had gone through. And I I did not expect to do that well, to be honest, not even close. I think I had gotten fourth at the Dew Tour right before going to X Games. And that was kind of, I had just learned double cork 1260s. And I was like, all right, if I implemented this one trick and I'm able to get that close to the podium, see what I can do. First X Games, pull up. And I was only in slope style to start off and I crashed in my run. And then I started begging the event organizers to get into big air. And I think Tom Wallace, Tom Wallace, I got to say thank you because you've really helped me out in my career. I think Tom dropped out of big air and I got his spot. And that's when I went and won. And I was planning to do that double cork 1620 in my slope style run, but it just gave me that opportunity to try it. And it paid off. So it was, it was crazy. And then the next week went home to park city. We had the world championships, which it was the first one ever. So a lot of us, I mean, personally, I didn't really know the significance of it. You know, it sounds world championships. It sounds pretty big, but I didn't honestly know I was about to drop out of the event because it was freezing cold. I was pretty tired. <laughs> and my, the, the rep for Nordica told me to take one run. And if I didn't want to do it after that, they understood. I was like, all right, that's a fair deal. And I crashed my first run and that's when the fire kicked in and I was able to uh, win with my second run. So, and then, yeah. And, th and that's your home run. That's your home hill. That was You're going down King's crown. Yep. Yep. Since I was 11 years old, skiing down the same run that where it was all made, 
you know, like where I learned everything, the memories from that run. It was, and you know, my whole family was down in the, in the finish corral with signs and it, it <laughs> I probably start crying if I keep going, but it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody in town, I'll speak here as a local, we were, you know, we didn't have any expectations. It's a new sport to a lot of us. And, you know, to watch you come around and, you know, that the course is interesting and it's not used as a course anymore. I will say it's my favorite end of day run. It's a great end of day run. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're sitting out there at the bottom and the only thing as a spectator you can see on King's Crown is the last jump. You can't see anything else other than the last jump, but you came soaring off that thing and all of a sudden the scores go up and you got the gold medal. It was so cool. And yeah, it, it is not the best for spectating unless they have the, the screen up with the cameras rolling. But what's really cool about it from uh, a skiing standpoint, like you said, at the end of the day, the backdrop, you overlook all of Park City. So when they had the terrain park up there, it was like you were jumping into Park City off every jump. And it's something really special about that. Yeah, it was a special time. Then you went on to Snow Basin. Yep. Was yep. that actually, I'm curious, was that in your plan at that point or did that get added on? That was in the plan. And to be honest, the in my book, winning the Dew Tour was top of the list behind X Games. X Games that I didn't ever think I would win. I mean, I don't know. It just seemed like something that was too far-fetched. And to be able to go in and do it first time was unbelievable. And then Dew Tour felt like, you know, that, that was top-level athletes of all different you know, every country and all different beginnings. It was just, to me, it felt like the the hardest one to win, especially in slope style. So, you know, I had one big era at X Games and then slope style at World Championships, but the Dew Tour run felt the best because I made, I made a goal to see how well I could do without doing a double flip. And at that point, everybody was doing double flips to win. But this was a rail heavy course. So I was like, I have to do my best rail run in order to offset not doing a double flip and then also do the hardest non-double flip, which was a switch upright 1440. And I was able to land almost in the parking lot. <laughs> I just went as big as I could. And it felt like the strongest run I'd ever done. So do you recall what run they used up at Snow Basin for that? Oh man, that's a good, that's a good question. I Oh, man, I don't know. I I haven't skied up there really since then, since the Dew Tours. Yeah, so. it, it was an amazing event. In fact, it was a really big deal to get the Dew Tour to Utah. Yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, it was pretty cool. That was really an incredible run. We're going to talk more after the break. Alex Schlopey, uh, great to have you here. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back on Last Chair. Utah is the heart of the great outdoors, and it only makes sense that Many of the very best outdoor product companies make their home right here in the shadow of the Wasatch Range. One of those companies that I really love is Gregory Mountain Products. In fact, I'm using a slimline Gregory backpack for my backcountry Avi pack right now, and I absolutely love it. Today, I want to introduce you to Gregory's Verde Inn Resort Ski Backpack. The Verde Backpack is the ultimate winter companion for those who want to hit the slopes with confidence and style. One of its cool features is a goggle-style hip belt so you don't get tangled up on the chairlift. And if you're in search of a touring backpack... Look at Gregory's impressive line of award-winning Avi packs designed to take on the backcountry with ease. 
that's the one that I really love. This season, buy from a company that lives the Utah experience because it lives right here in the Wasatch. That's Gregory Mountain Products and find them at Gregory.com. That's Gregory.com. Now let's get back to hear more of Alex Schulpe and his story right here on Last Chair. And we're back again on Last Chair with Alex Schlopey. And Alex, thanks again for joining us. A great run. And then, you know, going up to Sochi, you know, had a little bit of a change. Kind of give us a little bit of the lead up to Sochi and how that impacted you. Yeah. So after winning those three events, X Games, World Championships, Dew Tour, and then kind of stepping into that pro realm, you know, big contracts started to come up and I kind of lost my drive to win. And I think that was my biggest problem. I I hadn't really built the best work ethic. I had kind of used a lot of natural talent my whole life, you know, and having overcome some of those injuries that really helped out. I didn't have to work as hard to get back, but it came to bite me after, after I did win because I started to coast and I started partaking more in the, the party side of the sport. I was still doing okay. You know, I was able to stay top five, top 10, but I, I wasn't winning. And what it took for me to refocus was the announcement that the sport that we were getting into the Olympics for Sochi. And I had a lot of ground to make up. So I basically, I had hired a trainer, my buddy, Britton Brown, and he had kind of told me he thought it would be in my best interest to get sober and to train with him in a totally different way. So we started doing yoga. I went to the gym three to six hours a day and I just hit it really hard for nine months. And once I got back on snow, it was night and day. I felt like I had a shot and I was able to make up a lot of ground and learn all the tricks that I needed. At that point, everyone was doing double flips, both directions, right and left. So I was able to do that and started setting out my plan for the season for the uh, qualifications, which there were five events. And I think the first two were a bit of a wash. The second one, I think there was some snow, snow condition issues. So most of us just did like 360s and got through the course, kind of a throwaway. And then anyways, come down to the last two events in Park City, back on King's Crown, where I had won the world championships three or four years before. And like deja vu, the first the first event I won. I won the, the World Cup qualifier and had almost solidified my spot on the team. There were three spots already taken and one left, which was the coach's discretionary spot. And after winning that day, I remember getting interviewed by quite a few people asking how it felt to be on the team. And I had to remind them, I said, it's not over yet. We still have to compete tomorrow and anything could happen. In which the next day, the one who started it for me, my best friend, Joss, went and won. And I got eighth place. So turns out, had I gotten seventh place or better, then my points would have put me above him and I would have went. So it was exactly, to me, it feels like it was meant to be. And so Joss won that day and got on the team. And then he went on to, to Sochi and he won. So it was, it was a really beautiful yet bittersweet experience because Joss is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. He's incredible. I thought he was the best skier. He just couldn't put it down when it counted until that point. And he went and did it. So it was, it was really cool. But 
behind the scenes, I was starting to struggle after that and watching him in the Olympics and my friends all there able to compete. It was like all that work I had just put in and, you know, I'd really changed my life quite a bit to, to make that happen and get that close. It, it shut off pretty quick and I started falling. I want to come back to that, but first let's just uh, rewind a bit. That was an incredibly difficult team to make, though. You know, you haven't talked about Gus Kenworthy, Tom Wallace going yeah. for that team, despite the fact that he had a blown knee. Uh, and uh, McRae. Nick Yepper and McRae. You know, and, and, and pretty much most of you guys based right out of Park City. So, yeah. you know, there, there, there were only going to be, you know, a certain number of people who were going to go into that event. And, man, it was a tough team for anybody to make. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, when when the U.S. swept the podium, I think that kind of says it all. So, you know, it was, you know, Joss won, Gus got second and Nick got third. And, you know, Bobby could have been up there, too. It was basically if you were on the U.S. slope style team at that point, you were gunning for either first, definitely a podium position, though. So it was it was a very tough, tough qualification process. And I think the results show that. Were you able to watch the that gold medal round on TV? I was, yes. Yep. What were your emotions that day? This is a good question. It was incredible to see. Well, first I watched Sage Kotzenberg win slope style for snowboarding. That was amazing. And I'll be honest, I knew Joss was going to win before. I had a feeling and I knew it. And just to see it happen... At first, it was total excitement, but then something in me for my personal career kicked in, and I, I kind of felt like I was done, and that hit pretty quick. And I don't know where. It just felt like this is the end. I had that feeling. So it was bittersweet. And the next few years were rough. Yeah. To put it lightly, yeah, they were rough. Can you talk about those? Yeah. Well... It actually started almost exactly during the Olympic, when when the Sochi Olympics were going on. I think I was overcoming an injury from X Games because I was trying, I think, if I remember correctly, that's when I tried the 1980 because I was trying to show the U.S. ski team what they had left out, you know. <laughs> But I crashed, I think, four or five times, and the last crash was pretty bad. I think I tore my shoulder, and they gave me painkillers. And this was not the first time they'd given me painkillers, but the first time when I wasn't doing well um, mentally. So I think I had taken a few extra painkillers while I was watching the Olympics, and that was the first time that I had started. I would put that in the realm of abusing, and that got a lot worse and it really started to spiral as I started drinking again and kind of doing the normal ski party routine, but without the career to back it. So eventually that spiraled down as far as that can go. So I was ended up using heroin and I was on, I had done crack. I mean, you name it, I had done it all and I was stuck there for a little over a year. Was there a tipping point for you where you had that realization that you had to change that puts you in a position to say, I have the willpower to change as well? Yeah, it's, it's really tough with, especially with opioids, because you're in, it's like a different world and it's so addictive that 
to have a rational thought is pretty rare. But basically, I'd, I had gotten into a rehab. I, I wanted to quit the whole time. I wasn't having fun. I mean, it was it was miserable. I'd pretty much sold off all my, you know, everything I owned, TVs, everything. And that's the spiral of drug addiction. And I've heard so many stories and they all kind of line up in that sense. But at a certain point, it was just I was going to die or I had to get back up. And I didn't even know why I wanted to get back up at that point. But something told me if you just get back up and maybe write the story for for someone else. Like if if I could become an example for somebody else to help them get out of what I had gone through, that would be worth it. So that was actually kind of what when the rubber hit the road and I went to rehab. It's only 30 days, but after 30 days, I started thinking a bit clearer and that whole path because I had gotten in legal trouble too. So I went into the drug court program in Summit County and that was life changing. I mean, just it was a I ended up being in there for about two years. We had therapy, we had counselors, we had so many people. It was just like a team of people trying to recover. And we had the professional help that it it changed everything about me in the best way and kind of gave me the platform to to get back up and stay on my feet. So the drug court program, which is not available in every community, but it is in Summit County, is a program where essentially you have legal charges that are held in abeyance until you complete this program. So there's a lot on the line for you there. As I think you know, I've I have family and 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 friends who were in that program. We're in the program with you. It is really remarkable the difference that program can make. It's it's life changing. I mean. They always say, you know, addiction's like a broken brain and, you know, that means a broken person. So it's like, how do you rebuild that? I mean, that, it's like your best chance because you can't rebuild everything in a short period of time. There's something really beautiful about the recovery process. And I've seen people who would be perceivably maybe not some of the, the best people you would think until you see them in recovery and you see that there's really beauty in all these people. It's it's incredible. Do you think back on it now and you're able to recognize the real benefits that that brought to you and has helped to make you an even better person? Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many things from that program that, that continue. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I think just having the ability to look inwards and when you, when something is wrong, actually doing something about it. You know, that alone, that can take you so far. So eventually you did get back to competition, kind of. Tell us about that. <laughs> so that was cool. I basically, it actually happened right when COVID hit. I set the goal to go out and compete again. And, you know, in my mind, I had to set, you know, I'm going to compete to make the Olympics. But I, I knew that wasn't going to happen. But for me, in, in order for me to put forth my best effort, I had to set the bar high. It was really fun. I I went back and I trained just like I would even well even harder honestly than when I was before and I got I got a hold of Skogan Sprang on the US ski team and I'm like hey is there a way I can get into some contest and he's like yeah I think we could get you in a rev tour <laughs> and I'm like sweet sign me up and basically I was at Woodward Park City on the trampolines you know wearing my mask doing double flips learning triple flips pretty much every day and in the gym. And then next thing you know, I'm at the top of the X Games course again for, for the Rev Tour. And the nostalgia 
I mean, deja vu, but just, it was so beautiful. I was, I was in tears at the top, just like, all right, well, we're going to drop in again after everything you put yourself through, everything I've overcome. And it was just for me. I mean, there wasn't any cameras. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a sponsor. I was just like, I'm just doing it. And crazy enough, I was able to make finals, which I think I was six, six or seven years older than the, the next oldest competitor. <laughs> So I think they were 21, 22. They know who you were? Yeah. So yeah, quite a few of them did. And what's funny is a lot of the guys I competed against were coaching them. So they were like, they, they one, they called me White Iverson. I got a bunch of different nicknames up there because I didn't, I missed training and that was pretty common for me. And so, you know, White Iverson, Alan Iverson was known for skipping practice. Then there was that song by Post Malone. That's that's wild. <laughs> it was what, funny. What a, what a great story. Well, what's Alex Slopey doing today? Right now, I'm working at a ski club called Jackson's Hideaway. And to me, it's like having the ability to pass the torch. It's a membership program where, you know, you can come in and get a locker and you have a private lodge ski and ski out at Park City. And I get to go ski with the members and kind of show them around Park City, show them this beautiful place that I grew up and, you know, pass that torch along, show people the beauty of this whole area. So it's really, really fun. What does skiing mean to you today? Freedom. And that goes, there's layers to that, but, you know, it's kind of was a component to what led me to my darkest place and also what brought me out. It's, it's just total freedom. Looks like you're having fun. I am. I love it. Alex Slopey, thanks you so much. We're going to close it out with our fresh track section, a few final short questions. Who was your ski hero when you were growing up in Utah? Who'd you look up to? In Utah? Well, when you were in Utah, but any ski hero? Simon Dumont and Tanner Hall. So I'm just trying to think of the age thing. So you would have been connected to them probably when you were just starting, like 10, 11 years old, right? Yep. Yep. Watching them battle at the X Games. And then TJ Schiller, of course. That's who I tried to emulate. Yeah. And do you have, like, what's the sickest ski run that you've ever taken in Utah? It doesn't have to be in a comp, but sickest ski run that you've done. Tiger Tail at Snowbird, lapping that last winter. It was, yeah, endless, endless smiles, joy, face shots. It was incredible. Where's Tiger Tail? It's off the gad lifts. It's kind of, you have to cut through a rope. And look, I'm not a huge, I don't ski snowboard very often, but it was on the far side, basically skiing down a regular run and just a little opening in the ropes. You go through that, you hike up a little ridge for about, you know, 30, 40 feet, and it's just endless. And you lapped it. Oh yeah, we lapped it all day. Did you hike it? Yeah. You just kept hiking? Just kept hiking, kept lapping. Awesome awesome. stuff. What's the, of all your competition runs, and you mentioned a bunch of them, but of all of your comp runs, What's the one that sticks out in your mind that's like that really special one? It's funny because I didn't actually do well with it, but it was a detour run at Breckenridge where I'd spent all day working on one rail trick, which was, it was a switch lip side 270 to the top of the wall ride and then a blind 270 out. And I was able to do both way doubles and everything I'd been working on all in that run. I think I got like 12th or 13th, but to me, that was my best run. Cool. If you have to take clients out from Jackson's, where are you going to take them? Well, 10th Mountain Division is a fun run to go learn trees. I think that's a great one. There's some little hidden spots under the gondola going from Park City to the canyon side. It, it really depends on the skill level and what people are trying to ski. But, you know, if you ever see me out there, I'll point you in the right direction. Cool. Where's 10th Mountain? 
10th Mountain Division. It's off the top of Pioneer. You take a left and you basically ski the trees to the right. That'll take you back down towards McConkie's and Pioneer. I was with a group a few years ago, I think during the World Championships in 2019. It was a GoPro event. Wallace took us out and took us took us off of uh, Pinecone Ridge down that way. Yeah. And it was like, I think that's the last time we're going to see him. There's no way we're keeping up with that dude. And he goes down, he does a, you know, spins a 360, goes off another one, does a little flip. Crazy stuff. Sounds like Tom. It does, doesn't it? Favorite outdoor activity for you outside of skiing? I finally got a mountain bike again, and I absolutely love it. I love motocross too, but mountain bike's kind of that happy middle ground, so I'm not going to absolutely get wrecked when I crash. What's your go-to ski town restaurant? Go-to ski town restaurant? I like the Boneyard a lot in Park City. It's just a great environment. They have a lot of options on the menu, and if you're I don't drink, but if you do, that's a great spot to do it. So, And finally, in just one word, and you talked about this earlier, but in just one word, what does skiing mean to you? It's freedom. It is. Alex Schlopey, world champion, X Games champion, do tour champion. Thanks for taking the time to join us on Last Chair, and we'll see you up in the mountain this winter. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thanks again to Alex Schlopey. It was great to see him again after so many years and to reminisce about the early days of free ski when he was really one of the kings of the rails. Thank you again to our episode sponsor, Gregory Mountain Products, based right here in Utah. You can find them at gregory.com. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. If you like the podcast, share it with a friend and leave us a review when you can. And make sure to subscribe so that you get every episode delivered directly to you. Make sure to check out our season opening episode with U.S. Ski and Snowboard President and CEO Sophie Goldschmidt. And coming up next, we'll visit Woodward Park City to explore the transformational programs that Woodward is putting in place nationwide with President Chris Gunnarsson. To close this out, let's welcome back Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. Watch for them on tour this winter and stay tuned for some new music coming up soon. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to get out and ski. Oh, I love to ski. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah.